Amen. Thank you, Ken. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all in this glorious parking lot. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the folks that serves on the preaching team here at Missio Day Church. Um, and uh, it's good to be here. Uh, you know, when it starts to warm up here in Maine uh, in the springtime, I start to think about, I just cannot wait to sit in some of the great parking lots in our city. And here we are today. So I'm excited. Um, but uh, speaking of the spring, uh, we have a Droge family tradition. Every spring break, we go down to Myrtle Beach to a um, Holiday Inn Club Vacation Resort. And at this resort, there is a heated, lazy river. That's right. They exist, okay? And uh, you can sit on a tube on this lazy river and float down the heated, lazy river with a adult beverage, if you will, and it's good living. So make sure you pray for our family during those times. But uh, we go down every year, and this year we weren't able to go for the full week. <laughs> it was a real struggle. Um, we were only able to go to four days. Um, and so Emily had this idea of, hey, why, why don't we try a, a, a new place for the first couple days, and then we'll go to you know, where, where we normally go. So we were looking at places. Emily is great at researching vacations. Emily likes to research vacations when she's on vacation. It's a beautiful spiritual gift. But um, So we, we found this place called the Seacrest Resort. I'm like, this, this is, is Ryan Seacrest on this place? This looks amazing. Okay? And we're looking at pictures. It's right on the water. I'm like, done. This is it. This is the place. Um, and it looked like an absolute incredible resort. So we get there, we pull in at check-in, and I think to myself, we just made an enormous mistake, okay? Um, there are some interesting people that um, uh, are patrons of the Seacrest Resort. Um, the salt of the earth people, um, I would call them like white trash, okay? Which you might say, that's really mean you can't say that. But I have white trash in my family, so I know white trash when I see it, okay? So, um, but as you walk in, there is a wafting smell of what you might smell at like, I don't know, a Ziggy Marley concert or another reggae concert. I mean, it was just everywhere in the air. I think I had the munchies after I uh, checked in, okay? I mean, it was absolutely everywhere. Um, the pool had a little bit of... Um, uh, a cloudiness to it, okay? Um, both of our kids got sick after playing in the pool. I think there was like hepatitis A through Z in that pool. Um, but we were totally bummed. We were like, we're going to be here for the next two or three days. We, <laughs> this was totally misleading. And actually, while we were there, I went back on the website and I looked at the pictures and I'm like, you dirty dogs, you angled that picture a certain way and you didn't show the nasty cloudy pool. So, uh, but uh, we had expected this really great place, and we got there, and it was a complete bait and switch. And uh, so our expectations were completely different from the reality on the ground. And it's one thing for that, for, for that to happen uh, from uh, like a, a place or an experience, but it's another thing when it happens with a person or a group of people or, or someone that you're in a relationship with, where you have certain expectations of someone or something, and the reality on the ground does not match those expectations. And I think our text this morning... Uh, the, the, the Apostle Paul might have had similar feelings towards the Pharisees and Sadducees when he was called before the Sanhedrin. Because remember, Paul was Jewish, a Pharisee in fact, as he called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. So I think there's a sense in which Paul's expectations of who he thought they were and how they would respond did not match up with reality. So we're continuing our journey through Acts. We're going to uh, look at Acts chapter 22, uh, verses 30 through uh, 23, 11. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and take that out. Acts twenty-two thirty 30 to 23, 11. Here's the word of the Lord. On the next day, still wanting to get to the bottom of it all, 
and to find out what was being alleged by the Jews, he released Paul and ordered the chief priests to come together with the whole Sanhedrin. He brought Paul in and presented him to them. Paul looked hard at the Sanhedrin. My brothers, he said, I have conducted myself before God in a completely good conscience all my life up to this day. Ananias, the high priest, ordered the bystanders to strike Paul on the mouth. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, said Paul to Ananias. You are sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet you order me to be struck in violation of the law. You are insulting the, are, you are insulting the high priest, asked the bystanders. My brothers, replied Paul. I didn't know he was the high priest. Scripture says, of course, you mustn't speak evil of the ruler of your people. Paul knew that one part of the gathering were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees. My brothers, he shouted to the Sanhedrin, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. This trial is about the hope, about the resurrection of the dead. At these words, an argument broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they were split among themselves. The Sadducees deny that there is any resurrection or any immediate state of, uh, of angel or spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them both. There was quite an uproar, with some of the scribes from the Pharisees' party standing up and arguing angrily, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit spoke to him, or an angel for that matter? Faced with another great riot, the tribune was worried that Paul was going to be pulled in, in, uh, pulled in pieces between them. He ordered the guard to go down and snatch him out of their midst and bring them back to the barracks. On the next night, the Lord stood by him. Keep up your courage, he said. You have given your testimony about me in Jerusalem. Now you have to do it in Rome. So some observations from this text and an invitation for us to consider um, as, as we take a look at this. I want to kind of take the plane up to 30,000 feet and kind of remind us of some bigger picture things. So we've been in Acts for nine months now, and it can be easy for us to read through these passages uh, and miss much of its significance because when we've been in a book for a long time, you become familiar with the storyline. The same key figures continue to pop up. Similar themes continue to emerge, or perhaps we've heard some of these passages before, and they become comfortable and familiar. And it's at times when we become comfortable and familiar with Scripture that we can often miss its power, beauty, and importance. Now, remember, the early church, these followers of the way, as they were called, were figuring all of this out in real time with no script to go off of. I used the analogy when we first began our series that the early church is like putting a puzzle together, but not having the box in front of you. They don't know what the final product is supposed to look like. And the subject of that last sentence, they, is not referring to one singular unified group of people who are all rocking Jesus tattoos on their feet and believe all the same things. The term the early church encompasses many pockets and sects that's S-E-C-T-S, not S-E-X. Many sects of people throughout the Middle East, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. And there's little to no communication between these groups. They can't hop on a Zoom call and work out their details of their theology and practice. Uh, they can't visit each other's websites and compare statements of faith. So these various groups are trying to figure this out in real time, on the fly, as it were, with no New Testament, no Apostles' Creed, no church councils, 
And in addition to all of that, they're trying to figure this out in the context of Roman occupation and persecution. And Jews, who now believed that Jesus was the Messiah and joined this movement, they were facing continued conflict from their Jewish counterparts, a significant one being one that we just read this morning. So I'm reminded of these multiple layers of barriers and conflict as I read our text this morning, because here's Paul trying to lead all of the lead and sort of manage these pockets of people. And these churches are mostly a minority group in their own context. And on top of that, he's facing constant argument and conflict from all sides. So just looking at this from an outside perspective, as you look at all of those factors, one has to stop and say, when you add up all that the early church is facing, it seems absolutely insurmountable. This Jesus movement had everything against it, and it didn't seem like it had much going for it. And it makes complete sense to look at all those factors and come to that conclusion. But what the Jesus movement did have was the, reason, was the risen Jesus at their center, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the launching of new creation. And this is what is at the heart and the center of Paul's statement to the Sanhedrin. Look at the second half of verse 6. This trial is about the hope, about the resurrection of the dead. Paul wastes very little time by going to the heart of the issue, the resurrection of Jesus. Now the backdrop to all of this is that amongst the Sanhedrin, you have the Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, and others who made up kind of this ruling religious panel. And the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. In fact, they kind of want to dismiss Paul as someone who is seeing angels or spirits. They, they don't see him as kind of an important thing to worry about. And then you have the Pharisees who do believe in resurrection. That is the resurrection of all things at the end of the age. But take issue with the central message of these Jesus followers. Namely that Jesus was risen from the dead. Because in their mind, resurrection was meant for the end of the age and not before. This is why Paul goes right to the heart of the matter. It's reminiscent of his famous statement, I reside to know nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think we can't miss the fact that there was probably a degree of sadness in Paul. I mean, he himself was a Pharisee. He was one of them. If we were to rewind the clock a little bit from this encounter the roles would be reversed. Paul would be one of those among the Sanhedrin debating with another leader of the Jesus movement, and perhaps Paul would have been the one to strike the face of a leader of the Jesus movement for blasphemy. Paul knows these people, and I think is saddened by their own pride and arrogance that's blinding them from seeing the reality that Jesus was indeed resurrected, that he is indeed the Messiah and Lord of the world. I think it's similar to someone who grows up in a home that uh, is, doesn't have any sort of faith background or maybe another faith. And that person encounters Jesus and, uh, and their life is dramatically changed. And they go back to their family and there's a disconnect. They might be chastised for, 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 for their new belief. And there's a sense of, you are my family. You, you raised me. I love you. We have done life together. And yet you are missing this thing that has changed my life. You are rejecting the one who's changed uh, my life, and, and as a result, you're rejecting me. There's a great sadness with that. 
In my time working with high school kids in Young Life, I experience it all the time where uh, kids who uh, fill their lives with uh, alcohol and drugs and uh, promiscuous relationships uh, who encounter Christ and their life goes in a completely different direction. They return uh, to school to their friends and uh, uh, their friends are like, who, who are you? What, like, what, what, what are you doing? And they feel rejected by, by, by their group of friends. And it's like, I, I know you. Like, we, we're, we are friends. We've done life together. And you're missing it. You're missing the one who's changed my life. You're rejecting the one who's changed me. And in turn, you're rejecting me. So I think there's a degree of sadness there for Paul. Friends, think about this. We would probably not be sitting here in this glorious parking lot, praying, singing, and celebrating the risen Jesus if it were not for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And that hope that fueled Paul and the other heroes of the faith. I mean, when you consider all that was against this movement and the fact that it not only survived, but in fact thrived, there was exponential growth, it seems completely and utterly impossible and improbable. Just like a Messiah who is the embodiment of Yahweh, who is crucified and defeats the power of sin and death by rising from the dead. And yet this is how the good creator God has and continues to move in his good world that he wants to rescue and restore. So I think there's, there's something lurking behind this text that I believe is an invitation to us. A good question for us to ask is what was it that drove Paul to be so bold in this critical moment in front of the Sanhedrin? And no, you can't say, it was Jesus! Yes, it's true. Jesus is always the answer, but I'm looking for something more specific. I think the clue for answering that question is found in verse 11. When the Lord speaks to Paul and he says, keep up your courage. You have given testimony about me in Jerusalem. Now you have to do it in Rome. Now your translation may be a bit different, but, the Lord, but for the Lord to say, keep up your courage, means that he has seen Paul as one who has and continues to exhibit great courage. This is what I believe drove Paul. Courage. Courage is what fueled Paul in this critical moment in front of his own people to reveal the good news of Jesus. Now perhaps you suffer from chronic sarcasm like I do, uh, and you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh boy, here we go. A sermon on courage. Get out your cheesy Hallmark cards. Let's hear all the sentimental courage quotes. And I get it. I, I totally get it. I mean, I, as I was preparing, I was thinking about, you know, if you've ever worked at like an office building and you go into the break room and there's those like cheesy posters on the wall that say like opportunity and there's a sunset or like integrity and there's a big iceberg or, you know, courage and there's a big eagle, right? Like I, I totally, I totally get it. It's easy for conversations about courage to turn into corny platitudes that have no depth or meaning. So if that's you, Jesus still loves you. I take issue with you. Just kidding. Jesus loves you, but I encourage you to just set all those aside for the time being and lean into this conversation this morning. You may read passages like our text this morning and think that courage is relegated for one group of people, but not for everyone. Courage is perhaps reserved for the Pauls, the Peter, James, and Johns uh, of the world, the heroes of the faith, as it were, but not for you and me. I disagree. I think that courage is and should be a byproduct 
of a follower of Jesus. So the question is, can you follow Jesus and not exhibit courage? I think following Jesus and not leaning into uh, moments that demand courage is like driving a car that has a governor on it. It's like driving a car that can only go 35 miles per hour. It can get you to the grocery store or maybe to your uh, work if you live close enough, but it won't work on the highway, which means that it cannot take you on those long, memorable road trips to faraway places like the Seacrest Resort, which may be a good thing to not go to the Seacrest Resort. Following Jesus without courage is like sitting in the back of the auditorium to watch a play from a safe and comfortable vantage point versus the director turning back to you and saying, come into the story. Your scene is almost here. Get ready to deliver your lines. C.S. Lewis said that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point which means at the point of highest reality. I think that Lewis is getting at what I think we must consider, and that is that courage is not just another Christian virtue amongst a list of others, but rather the foundation upon which all other virtues sit. Does this mean that when we don't exhibit courage, that Jesus no longer loves us, or that our faith is somehow less than? No. But it does mean that we are missing out on an invitation to be more fully human, to experience a deeper trust in King Jesus and a larger picture of his lordship. Just like Jesus' invitation to Simon Peter to push out into deep water. The sea is more uh, unpredictable and tenuous in deep water. The fish are bigger. The shore is much smaller in the distance. But yet in that moment, Jesus and his lordship was bigger than Simon could have ever dreamed. Courage is being mindful of the wind and the waves and yet still be willing to get out of the boat because of the one who calls us by name to come to him. Uh, Courage is an oft-used word in our culture today. The Oxford definition of courage is the ability to do something dangerous or to face pain or opposition without showing fear. While there are elements of this that are true, I think this definition reveals what our culture has made courage to be. There's almost a theatrical component to it, making it mostly self-focused. Courage in our culture is all about living your own story. The courage to show your true self or true identity. And I don't want to uh, minimize or downplay uh, those moments and experiences as insignificant because they can be very profound moments for people. But true Christ-centered courage is other-focused, not self-focused. It's selfless, not selfish. It is not my will, but your will be done. The close relative of courage is fear. They tend to go together. They coexist together. And oftentimes it is fear that keeps us from experiencing courage because we expect that in order to, for courage to exist, fear must not be present. FDR's famous quote on courage alludes to this when he said, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is far more important. We are not called to be people who have absolutely no fear. 
or people who are not uh, the least bit afraid. Rather, in the midst of fear, we are called to trust the one who has overcome the world. We are called to trust the one who said, do not be afraid. It is me. But most of all, we are called to trust the one who said, fear not, for I am with you. We never enter into moments that demand courage alone. The one who was the most courageous person has gone before us, and that one is with us. And courage is not always uh, choosing to do something or say something. In fact, some of the most courageous acts that we could do is to choose to not say anything, to choose to not do anything, to choose to not engage for the sake of someone else. And when we think of this, we tend to think of courage on a large scale, similar to what we read about Paul in this passage. However, I would argue you cannot have Christ-centered courage on a larger scale without it first happening on a smaller scale. Large-scale courageous moments are the byproduct of many small-scale courageous moments that happen again and again. Even though Paul's conversion happened in a dramatic fashion, and in many ways very quickly, he did not go from one day being knocked off his horse to the next day arguing with the scribes and the Pharisees. He made this small and yet significant courageous decision to go to the house of Ananias, then to stay with the disciples in Damascus for a few days, and then he went to the synagogue to engage people. You might remember... um, from previous sermons, I'm sure you've memorized all of them. Um, uh, I've mentioned uh, my good friend Vijay. Vijay is one of my life mentors. He married uh, Emily and I. And uh, Vijay grew up in, in India and in a kind of a nominal Hindu family and was sent off to boarding school. And at this boarding school, uh, they would have Christian missionaries who would come. And there was a New Testament that was left on his uh, bed. And he began to, to read the New Testament. And as best he could, based on what he read, he, he gave his life to Christ. Uh, and now he kept this a secret uh, from his family. And so he would make small-scale, courageous efforts, like sneaking off to the library to read his Bible. And then he would make another small step of going to the library to read the Bible and then taking notes and stuffing it in his pockets and hiding it in his room. And then he would make another small-scale, courageous movement by he would stay up late and wait till his parents would go to bed so he could pray in his room and not be heard. And then the moment came when he left for college and told his family, I just need you to know that I am a follower of Jesus. He's changed my life. And there was a permanent rupture with his family. And there was despair and brokenness. There was fear. But in the midst of the fear, Vijay got out of the boat and said, this is the one who's changed my life. And I love you too much to not tell you the reality of who he is. Small-scale, courageous moments are the, uh, will lead to large-scale invitations for us. So how might we live out a Christ-centered courage in the context that we find ourselves? Uh, well, the easy answer is I don't know because I don't know all of you. All of you are the experts on your own life, not me. Uh, but here are a few thoughts as I thought about this this week. Here's the first one. Remember, 
The Psalms are full of remembering. In the midst of, of incredible pain and suffering, there's essential with the psalmist is remembering the goodness of God, how God has moved in the past, he's moved now, and he will move in the future. What if later this afternoon or this evening, you, you just wrote down a list of moments in your life where you feel like you've displayed courage? They could be small, they could be large, it doesn't matter, but make that list. It could be two things long, it could be 20 things long, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, but make a list of the moments in your life where you have displayed courage. And have that serve as a reminder that, yes, indeed, it is possible for you to be someone who has courage. So make a list of those things to say, to remind yourself that, yes, it is possible for me to exhibit courage. So remember. Number two, start small. Oftentimes when we want to make changes in our life, don't we go for the, like the big home run, right? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change this huge thing, and it never happens, right? Oftentimes, I'll sit with uh, Young Life leaders at the beginning of the semester, and they'll say things like, I'm going to meet as many kids as possible by name this year. And they tend to not meet that many new kids. But then if I sit with a leader who's like, you know what? I'm going to try and meet five new kids this week. And then over the course of the semester, they meet the most kids. Start small. What is... What are the small invitations that the Lord might be giving you to exhibit courage in your life? Start with a small thing. Start in your own home, in your marriage, in your family, in your place of work, with your neighbors. Start with the small. Here's the last thing. Start doing what you are resisting. Start doing what you are resisting. Uh, there are those years, uh, you know, before we leave for Young Life Camp where I'm just like, I just do not want to go on this trip. Uh, I'm exhausted. Just please, I don't want to go. Those end up being the best trips. Or if I know I've got a meeting come up and I'm like, I just don't want to meet with this person. Can I pretend that I have a cold? Can I cancel this? Please, I just don't want to talk to this person. And, then, and yet in those conversations, the Lord moves in a powerful, powerful way. So what is it that you are resisting? What relationship are you kind of running away from? What situation are you just trying to dismiss and not think about and hope it goes away? What if you leaned into the things that you want to resist? Because if you're uncomfortable with it, that probably means that that's an invitation from the Lord to come and display courage. So start doing what you are resisting. Unless it's like hit somebody. Don't hit somebody. You resist hitting people, okay? Listen to this passage from Hebrews. But we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and so are saved. In the moments where Christ-centered courage is needed, it is tempting for us to shrink back and remain safe and comfortable. And perhaps it is tempting because we think that it is us who must be courageous. But in fact, it is Jesus who was and continues to be courageous for us and through us by the power of his spirit. So friends, may we be people who refuse to shrink back, but instead embody a Christ-centered courage that enables us to push out into deep water and let down our nets for a catch.
Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for parking lots. Thank you for the gift that it is to be together. We are here because of the faithfulness and courage of people like Paul and Stephen, the Ethiopian eunuch, Peter, and the list goes on and on of people who against all odds continue to proclaim the good news of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, the hope found in the risen Messiah. So we are grateful for the shoulders of people that we stand on now. And we have been given so much. We gather here in public with no fear of our lives. We have translations of the Bible in more, in more than we can count. We have been given so much, and to much that is given, much is expected. So Lord, I pray that we would be people who do not shrink back from your invitations to courage, but that we might lean into those moments, not because we don't have any fear, and not because it is the courage within us, but it's because it is the courage in the risen Jesus who has conquered death itself. If death no longer has any sting, then we have nothing to fear. So Father, this week I pray we would be people of great courage in large ways and in small ways so that your kingdom would come and that your will be done in Portland as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to transition to uh, taking communion now. Um, So Shauna and maybe Rob, if you can hand out the cups, please. Um, They'll come around and give them to you um, if you'd like. Please wait until um, I lead you to open them up before we actually take the elements together. I'd like to make sure we do so together communally. Um, But as they're handing them out... um, I want to encourage you to, I'm going to read a scripture in a moment, but I want to encourage you to reflect and meditate more on what Jordan shared this morning, specifically on the theme of courage. I was really struck by, um, personally, I was struck by the promise that Jordan reminded us that Christ is with us to the end of the age um, and to take heart. And I want to uh, invite you as we begin to take communion, which points to what Christ did in overcoming the world, what Christ did so that we could take heart, um, the broken body and the spilled blood. I would encourage you to think about, is there an area in your life in which you feel the lack of Christ? Um, and therefore you feel a lack of courage, potentially. Maybe you feel in a life situation, a certain context, a certain memory, I don't know. You feel that Christ was not with you or is not with you in that. Um, if there is something there for you, I want to give you just a 30 seconds to a minute to um, speak to the Lord about that. Um, ask him to ask him to bring something to mind, even, um, and in, in, invite him into that place. If you want to pray with someone about that afterwards, um, leaders would be happy to do that. But Ken could play some music um, in the background. I'll, I'll give you a minute to think about this invitation. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. 
And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I invite you to open your cups, um, dip the wafer into the juice, and take communion together. And pray with me. Lord, as we take these um, wafers and this juice physically into our bodies, we're reminded that you are with us. You've promised to be with us and your promises do not fail. Lord, I lift up, as a community, I lift all of us up together. Lord, whatever memories or thoughts or life situations were brought to the surface a moment ago, I pray that um, we collectively would really feel your presence in those places in our lives. That we would be, we would be a people of Christ-centered, Christ-formed courage in this world. I pray this all in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.